I'm going to preach from the floor tonight because I I feel like uh, our topic and and this book, and I'm going to try not just to lecture on this book, but more the content or the the purpose of of this book or this biblical account, it's an incredibly personal book about an incredibly personal subject. I would ask you in, in your own minds to, to think about a time maybe when you loved someone who rejected you. Maybe, maybe some of you that I know have dealt with the heartache of, of having children that, that you love more than life itself, but for whatever reason they have decided that they don't want anything to do with you or they don't want anything to do with your way of life. And that hurts. It's almost an unbearable pain. I've spoken to so many dealing with, with the struggle of having unfaithful children. And I don't have a lot of good words. I've got words, but, but those words always seem to be lacking. Some of you know what it feels like to have a spouse who has been unfaithful. Some of you know that because because your marriages have been been ruined through those things. A husband who ran off with some woman that he worked with. A wife who ran off with somebody that she met on the internet. And there you are, and the one that you loved more than any other has decided they love someone else. Those things don't just happen out there, do they? Those things happen in here. And all of those feelings that are tied up in that, and even even if you've been fortunate enough to never experience that directly, I want you to think about what, what do you think that would feel like? What, what, what do you think it would feel like if your, if your wife went after another man? What do you think it would feel like if your husband went after another woman? What do you think it would feel like if your children rejected you to your face? See, I'm looking at your faces right now, and I know you, you don't even have to try very hard to know what that would feel like. Because you know how horrible that is. And that brings us to the prophet Hosea. Hosea was one of the few prophets that was sent to that northern kingdom of Israel with all of their wickedness. And, and so many of the prophets, and so many of the prophets, they will go down and they will talk about all of the ills and all of the sins of, of, of the people, all and their, their great failure to actually give respect to other people right? To, to, to actually take care of the poor or to reach out to those who are of a lower class. The, the book of Amos is, inc- is incredibly insightful as we talk about, you want to talk about the subject of social justice? Well, uh, read the book of Amos. But, but the book of Hosea isn't going to be so specific. He's just going to hit in on this idea that you've left God. He's going to hit in on this idea of spiritual adultery. 
Of course, the New Testament writers will pick up on this, but, but the entire book of Hosea really focuses in on these things. Not because he wants you to think about your children being rebellious or your spouse being unfaithful, but because he wants you to understand God. And he wants you to understand to the very best of your ability what it is that we do to God and how God feels whenever we embrace sin. We, we have all embraced sin, have we not? I won't ask for a show of hands because everyone would have to raise their hand. There's no none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The most righteous person in this room stands desperately in need of a Savior because of your sin. Sometimes as I've looked at other people who have been unfaithful or who have rebelled against, against their parents or, or who have not returned the love that was given to them, I, I've looked at them and, and I've wanted to ask these questions. Uh, do, do, you not, do you not know what you're doing to these people that love you? Do, do you not know what you're doing to your mother? Do you not know what you're doing to your father? Do you not know what you're doing to your spouse? Or do you not care? Well, when we come to the prophet Hosea, we ask those same questions about our Heavenly Father. You see, sin is not this business transaction. I, I, think, I think we err when we think about sin and righteousness as if it was just a business transaction. I understand the debt that is owed and the debt that is paid and Christ being the propitiation. I understand the mechanics of it. And, and so there, there is a sense in which it is not less than that. But, but if you think that our relationship with God and our involvement with sin is just a mechanical thing, where, as we talked about in our Bible class this morning, that, that you know if we sin, God doesn't approve of it, and there's a penalty to be paid, but He can take it or leave it. Here it is. If you want to come be a part, that's good. But if you don't want to be a part, well, okay, that's your choice. If that's how you view fellowship... If that's how you view God, then I would encourage you to go back and read your Bible because that's not what's going on. There is a deep personal relationship. There is a pain that God is trying to help us understand in the midst of one of the prophets who would speak a word of condemnation. This is all in the context of being a very few short years away from, oh, by the way, the Assyrians are going to come and wipe you off the face of the map for your sin. In the context of that message of condemnation, there is this message of love. There is a God who loves you. We, we, we know the golden text of the Bible in John 3 and verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. When, 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 you say, when you say that, you think about the love that you have within your heart. I, I, I don't know exactly the intent of it, but, but I always focus in on that word, so. I mean, it's not enough for me to say that I love my wife. It's not enough for me to say that I love my children, is it? 
I mean, I could say it, it would be true, but, but does that really show the depth? I mean, it, once again, it's not just this transactional model. There, there are feelings and there are emotions that are beyond my ability to convey with, to, to convey with words. And I'm fairly good at using words, but I don't have those words. That's how God feels about us. That's how God feels about you and about me. And so when we look at the prophet Hosea, we're going to see that in the flesh. We're going to see that through the life of this man, Hosea, who is going to be called upon to do something that it almost seems beyond the pale of what we think is reasonable. But yet God has called him to do this shocking thing because God is going to use his life to make a point. Not not just a point for Hosea, but a point for a nation to hear. A point for God's people throughout the generations to hear. A point for us to hear tonight about God and who God is and how God feels about sin. He, he begins there in verses 2 and 3 with, with this simple statement. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of harlotry. L- literally, he says, a wife of harlotries. We know what a harlot is, Rahab the harlot, prostitution, someone who would give themselves to men for the sake of money or for the sake of deliverance. In verse 5 of chapter 2, he says, For their mother has played the harlot. She who has conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Now we all know what, we all know what a harlot is. And, and, and there are many different people that have speculated about what this means, but I'm just going to tell us that the simplest meaning and 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 the meaning that's going to give us the, the deepest impact of what he's trying to do here is just to take it for what it is. He's telling him to go and marry a prostitute. And you could say, well, he's telling, saying he's going to go and marry someone who's going to be a prostitute or go and marry someone who is going to be sexually promiscuous. promiscuous. Uh, I don't think that helps us very much with getting around this. You, you, you speak to your children about what sort of woman they ought to want to marry right? My children probably get tired of hearing me talk about what sort of a man my daughter ought to marry, what sort of a woman that, that my son ought to marry. Sometimes we'll have conversations and we'll, you know, you'll see someone, you, you know that's not an option, right, son? Right? I mean, I, I don't know any other way than just to be blunt about it, okay? Because we got to have, because I don't, I, don't, I don't want them to miss that, 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 that point, right? You know he's not an option, right? Oh, yeah, I know, Dad. Good. As long as you're getting the point, can, can, you picture, can you picture someone coming up and saying, you know who I've decided to marry? Prostitute. What? I mean, that, 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 I wouldn't think that'd be very smart. I, I think you'd be setting yourself up for a life of, of 
having your heart wrenched out of, wrenched out of your body. You go and you marry, take for yourself a wife of harlotry. And I want you to have children of harlotry. So, so some of you could, could understand not, not only what it means to have an unfaithful spouse, but then when that spouse has a child who is not your child. The pain that that brings up. Even that child that you love, that becomes this continual reminder every time that you see that child. Even in their names, even in the names that he's going to give them that are, are, symbolizing, are symbolizing this lack of relationship. No longer will they be his people. And there are a lot of images that are going around here, both from the wife and from the children. But, but the reason he's telling him to do this, okay, the, the reason that he's telling them to do this, he says, for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of, of Diblom, and she conceived and bore him a son. So he goes and he marries this woman, and there's a lot of the, de the details I, I just don't know, okay? And we could talk about those things. That'd be great things to talk about in the foyer. But, but the point is, I want you to marry a harlot because your marriage is going to be, is going to be symbolic. I, I personally believe that he must have loved love this woman in some ways, but, but, but whatever the details, it's symbolic of a people. We, we, we talk about what our marriage is supposed to symbolize, right? We, we, we look at places like, places like Ephesians chapter 5 where he talks about why it is that he gave one man and one woman and, and that that is supposed to be symbolic of Christ and his church. People are supposed to see that, Right? When they see your, your marriage, they ought to be seeing a picture of Christ and his church. That's a pretty high bar. He says, when people see your marriage, I want them to see the relationship that I have with this nation. One who loves, but who is rejected by the one whom he loves. God's not just trying to be mean. God's not just trying to set, to set Hosea up for a difficult life. He's trying to make a point. I want you to understand. I want you to, I want you to feel how God feels about you and how God feels about sin. When you see someone whose spouse has been unfaithful to them, don't you feel for them? Don't you? It's those same feelings that God says you, you ought to feel those same things when you see sin. Because, because I've loved you. I've given you everything that you've needed, but yet you have rejected me. Now, now this, we, we, we struggle with this whole concept in our minds, once again, as usual, because our concept of God is much too small, right? We think of God giving blessings. We think of God improving things. Uh, we, we, we think of God actually, you know, helping us in our marriages as a but but all throughout scripture we need to understand that God is constantly using people's lives and even using even using suffering in people's lives asking people to do not not sinful things but incredibly difficult things because there's something bigger going on 
You can read in Isaiah 20 in verse 3 where you see that Isaiah was, was, was to walk around naked and barefoot for three years. Now, I'm not even going to explain that to you beyond to say that's what God asked him to do, to make a point. You, you, you can read about, about Ezekiel who was told to lay on his left side for so many days and then to lay on his right side for so many days. Later on, Ezekiel is told, and when you come to the funeral, you are not to mourn. Can, can you picture that? Can, can you picture going to the funeral home and, and God saying, okay, I know that you're laying to rest someone that you love and someone that you care about. There will be no mourning today. You must not allow yourself to mourn. What? God is trying to make a point through their lives. Jeremiah is told not to eat certain things. The, the, the entire book of Job, Job and all of the suffering in his life, I mean, burying 10 of his children and losing all of his money and losing all of his prestige, losing everything. D- do we understand that really there's, there's this cosmic scene going on where, where he, he is becoming a demonstration of the worthiness and the righteousness of God? And we read things like that, and, and, and in my mind, I, I often wonder about how God is working in my life, and I'm fascinated by the idea of prominence, but, but so often I think, of, I think of myself as the hero of the story, right? God doing great things through my life, which is wonderful. We know that God does that, right? But, but with, every, with every production where there, is a, where there is a great star, there are also all these supporting stars and all these supporting details. And we can talk about the greatness of God, but, but what, if, what if I'm one of the supporting details? What if I'm one of those who has to die in my life in order to make this point? What if in the midst of my suffering, God is really trying to show something through me. I, I don't know that in my life, but in Hosea's life, God's being very intentional about this. Would God actually ask me to suffer in order to make a point about who He is? Would, would God do something like that? Well, the answer over and over is yes, and the ultimate answer is, is yes, right? I mean, this is no less than He asks of His own Son, not my will be done, but your will be done. And he becomes this great picture, this great picture of, of the will of God and the love of God. He's not asking him to sin when he asks him to marry Gomer. It's not a sin. It's not a sin to marry somebody who, who it might not be wise to marry. Right? Maybe a bad idea, but that doesn't make it a sin. I think I've done some marriage ceremonies that I didn't know if it was the best idea or not. Okay? But it wasn't sinful. I mean, if it was sinful, then you could, you could have a different discussion here. What she was doing or going to do was sinful, but God was trying to make this point. And so he marries her to make this point. We, we, we sometimes read this and we think, okay, so this is about how I need to be forgiving if people if people do these things to me. And you can get that point from it, but that's not really the point. Because in this story, in this story, we, we, are, not, we are not Hosea. We're Gomer. Do, do we understand that? We're the ones who are rebellious. We're the ones who are committing spiritual adultery. 
Israel is the ones who he's making this point against. And so he loves her and he cares for her and everything, the text doesn't really even elaborate on this. But then we, we, we come down to chapter 3, and all this is played out in the first three chapters, but we come down to chapter 3 and, and the Lord says to me, go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the, ra- the raisin cakes of the pagans, part of their, part of their pagan feast. So, so I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And, and he says, Hosea, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you, I want you, to, I want you to love her again. So, so there's this strange thing that happens whenever we rebel against God and, 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 we, and we return to Him and, and maybe, maybe we're baptized into Christ or maybe there's this thing that we have asked God to forgive us of and then from that point forward, we never struggle with that thing again. Is that the way that works? No. We, we know it's not. As a matter of fact, in my, in my life, Typically, I find myself asking, asking about the same stuff. Like, there's some stuff I, I don't have any issues, right? I, I mean, none, zero, zilch. If we're worried about social drinking, ha, I'm good, right? But there are other things that I plead with God to forgive me of, and He forgives me, and, and I do good, and then I fall right back into that same trap. And then I pray for God to forgive me, and He forgives me, and I learn that lesson. And then, and then I, I fall right back and over and over and over and over again. Is, is, that, is that anybody have that experience? It's the same stuff. I'm not saying that it's a good thing or an acceptable thing. I'm saying that that's typically how people work. I mean, you don't look back to, to the day that you were born again and say, "Yep, I mean, I, I haven't had an issue with sin since that day." Right? I mean, you know, like the thief on the cross, and he's got like ten minutes, and he can't go anywhere. That, that, that's not our experience. So, I'm not just saying I love you. I'm not just saying that I'm willing, I'm, willing, I'm willing to overlook your sin in this moment. He's trying to get this picture where God is saying, I extend a hand to you and you rejected it. And I extend it again and you rejected it. And as many times as I've extended my hand, you've rejected it, but I've still extended my hand. It's, a beautiful, it's this beautiful picture of how God loves us, of how He's broken by our sin, but how He still loves us and still pays a price for us. It's likely she was involved in some sort of temple prostitution, as this kind of made reference here, but, but He has to go and redeem her and to pay a price to get her back. And, and I don't know exactly everything that's going on, but have you ever paid for something you didn't feel like you should have to pay for? I mean, there, there, there are these moments, right? Where like, I shouldn't have to be paying for this. But that's what he has to do. That's what he has to do. The, the, this situation of you have to go and pay this price to redeem her from some whatever relationship that she has found herself in. There, there's, I don't, there's that old story in my, in my head of, of, of the little boy who made, who made a sailing ship. You guys remember this story? 
There's a little boy who made a sailing ship, and he made it, and it was just a beautiful thing, and he was so proud of it, and, and he decided he was going to take it out on the water, and I mean, he had, he had worked for weeks and months to get this thing right, and, and he's having such a wonderful time, and it's everything that he thought it would be, and, and the wind kicks up, and all of a sudden, his boat just gets away from him, and this kid is standing there on the, on the, on the, on the side of, of the little lake, and I mean, he can't swim. I mean, wh- where's the boat's gone. Then about a month later, he's walking downtown, and he sees in a little thrift shop, there's his boat. That's his boat. It's got his initials in the bottom of it, right? And he goes in, and he tells, he tells the chef, well, hey, that's my boat. Well, I mean, <laughs> no, it's my boat, right? I, I finders keeper, losers weepers, right? And, and he says, but you can buy it. And he takes every penny that he has, and he has just enough to pay the price for, for, for this boat. And he buys this boat, and, and he's walking out, and he's got this big smile on his face. And he says, he says now, now you're really mine. You're really mine because I made you and I bought you. It's that parallel between this God who created us in his own image. Sh- should he have to redeem us? I mean, he created us perfect. He created us, he created us as he intended for us to be, but yet we sin. And he would have every right to say, I mean, I gave you everything. Why? You're asking, you're coming back again? I mean, I've already, I've already given you everything that you need. But he still pays the price. The blood of his own son. That's the picture that we have here in Hosea. It's a picture of God. It's a picture of God that it has application in the life of Israel, but it has application in the life of all of God's children. You look at the language of spiritual adultery that, that James uses in James chapter 4. There in, in James chapter 4, in verses 4 and 5, where James says, adulterers and adulteresses. He's not talking about just the sin of adultery here, by the way, Okay. He's, he's using that as that illustration of you have rejected your first love. You have been unfaithful to the one that you are, that you are supposed, supposed to be in a covenant with. That, 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 that idea of spiritual adultery. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain that the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? This idea of that marriage covenant, right? Where literally you become a one-woman man or a one-man woman, right? Isn't that what marriage is? Like there is one woman for me. There is one man for my wife. Let's be real clear about that. And, and there might be certain situations that I'm going to avoid because that's not appropriate for someone who says, I, I'm a one-woman man. Right? He's trying to make the same point about our spiritual lives. Would you, would you think it odd... Would you think it odd if you saw, you know, maybe we ran into each other at lunch every day, and you saw me at lunch every single day with, with, with some woman who wasn't my wife? Would you think it odd? My wife's giving me a look right now. She would think it was odd. 
right? And odd is probably not the word that she's got in her mind right now, right? That's not acceptable. But when we think about our walk with Christ, when we think about our walk with Christ, do we think it odd that when we claim that Jesus Christ is the most important, is the most important one in our life, do we find it odd when we're continually walking over here with someone else, with something else? Do we think that odd? You see, in this world, in this world where Christianity becomes just a part of our life, instead of being those radical disciples like we talked about this morning, that's how so many people are living, are trying to live their spiritual lives, and they're wondering, why are we so unfulfilled? Well, you're so unfulfilled because you're doing it wrong, Right? It's kind of like these people who, who have open marriages. I don't know, I don't know, you read about some of that, okay? It's messed up. Here's what I'm going to tell you about those people. They don't have good marriages. I was talking here even recently about, about a married couple that, that I know of, and they, and they, they live separate lives. And, and listen, I don't know, I don't know that they're on the, on the verge of divorce. Here's what I do know, they don't have a good marriage. I don't even have to know that. I don't have to know details. I don't have to know who their marriage counselor is or when the papers are due. None of that. They may never get divorced. I'm just going to tell you that marriage is not a blessing for them because they're living separate lives. It's that same principle that he says, I want you to see that in your spiritual life. I don't want people to say, you know what? I mean, he, he's spending a lot of time with her. He's, she's spending a lot of time with him. Does that happen spiritually? Yeah, you know it does. We've seen it, right? I won't even talk about how we've seen it in the mirror, right? But, but we, we understand that. And so we have to constantly refocus ourselves. Just like we need to work on our marriages, we, we need to work on our relationship and our oneness with God Himself. Or do you think that the Scripture says in vain... Now, now listen, th- this ties back to what Hosea says. Yeah. You, you ever said something? You ever made a statement and people act like you didn't even say anything? Like, right? All your teachers are like shaking your head up and down. Yeah, yeah, all the time that happens. Like, like, like I was just trying to fill, fill up the space or something like that. That's not what's going on, okay? When the Scriptures speak, they're speaking on purpose. What do the Scriptures say? That the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously. That means that when God sees us wandering off into idolatry, when God sees us wandering off into friendship with the world, that He sees that, how does He feel about it? He's jealous. I I want you all to myself. He feels the same way that, that a jilted husband or a jilted wife feels whenever their spouse wanders off with someone else. That's how God feels. Listen to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, he's going to talk about the penalty of sin and the destruction coming upon them. And we don't have time this evening for all of that. But, but, but there are these words in, in verses 8 and 9. If you want to read up before, he's going to talk about, he's going to talk about the penalty that's coming upon them. But listen to what he says. This is how God feels about you and me when we sin 
and when we deserve to be punished for our sin. God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I surrender you, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zimboam? These are cities that have been destroyed. For my heart is turned over within me, and all of my compassions are kindled. You you ever speak to someone who's in one of those jilted relationships or who has rebellious children, and you can look at it from the outside and say, why don't you just write them off? They've obviously written you off. And that feeling of, "I, I, I can't. I can't. I have to hold out that hope because I love them so much and I have to do what I can do. And that's, that's what God says in these moments when he says, my heart is turned over within me. That's how God feels. My compassions are kindled. I will not execute my fierce anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. It's why when you read the prophets, I mean, the the, the language is so in your face, but in the midst of all of the in-your-face destruction, there's always this remnant. There's always this message of hope. And it's the same thing with the gospel Listen, to understand the good news, you have to understand the bad news. That's just the reality. Most people don't know how good the good news is because they don't know how bad the bad news is. But if all we do is show people how bad the bad news is and we say, now sit there and think about it, then we haven't preached the gospel. We've got to show them, but in spite of your sin, Jesus has died for you. Jesus shows us a way home. Should we be surprised that there's there's this similarity between the prophets and the gospels? No, because they're both reflections of whom? The one, the true, the living God. We have to think about that. We need to think about this when we sin. It's not just me deciding I'm going to go over here and it doesn't affect anybody but me. You know that's a lie in our personal relationships, right? It's a lie in our spiritual relationships. Our sin, it can be with just yourself. It affects God. It affects God. His heart is turned over within Him. I think remembering that helps me when I'm struggling with sin. When I'm struggling with do, do I follow after the flesh or do I follow after the Spirit? To remember Hosea, to remember James, to remember God, that jealous God who roars forth with a powerful message, a message of love and a message of redemption. There will be Well, there will be in Israel a day of reckoning. The the nation is to be destroyed in a short number of years because they didn't turn. One day, 
One day there will be a day of judgment. And Jesus tells us that on that day there will be more who are lost than there are who are saved. That is not something to rejoice in. That is something that ought to turn our stomachs. But it's something that we ought to hear. But in those days when people are lost, it will not be because God did not love us. It will not be because God doesn't care about us. It will not be because God didn't pay the ultimate price for us. It will not be because of any shortcoming in the hand of God. To understand that, that people will not be lost because God has given up on, on people. People will be lost because we have given up on God. But our God has done everything. I love the statement. I say it over and over because it challenged me. It challenges me. God has done everything within His power to save our souls. The question becomes, do we think that the Scripture says these things in vain? It does not. It says these things to call us home. I don't know what went on in Hosea and Gomer's marriage, but I know that everything that we read about was designed for her to come home and to be faithful. I, I, I don't know what went on with his children and, and, the, and the, the names that they were given, but I know that everything in their life was designed to make this point, we want you to come home. And that's why God extends the invitation, even this evening, because he wants us to come home and to be faithful. Whoever you are, wherever you are, whatever you've done, we have a God who extends an invitation to repent, to be baptized, to walk with him once again, to come and be his child because he loves us. You come tonight as we stand and as we sing.